Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi, and this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are honored to be joined by Rich Gehrman. Um, he is the executive director of a group called Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota. And the group has recently put out a blockbuster report, um, a harrowing report that I encourage everyone to read. It's called Minnesota Child Fatalities for Maltreatment 2014 to 2022. Um, thanks so much, Rich, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. So can you just tell us a little bit about uh, Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota first, um, you know, how you got into this, and then we're going to delve into some of the findings from this report, which, again, I just encourage everybody to look at. Well, Safe Passage for Children is basically a response to what we saw in Minnesota as um, practices and policies that were not uh, friendly to children and that were getting children into situations where they were getting harmed or killed over a period of time. My personal background just kind of fit into this. I spent probably 20 years managing different government operations, mostly in human services. Uh, did some community organizing when I was younger, worked with street kids when I was younger. So, uh, and I had a, you know, some consulting work where I really worked with the data. So I just put the pieces together and our model is pretty simple. We train volunteers and they go uh, talk to their legislators about the needs for, need for improvements in the system, better practices better training, more resources, that sort of thing. Uh, and so we're a very small organization, but I think we've had uh, kind of an outsized impact primarily because of the citizen involvement. Yeah. And, and the importance of uncovering what you have just uncovered. So right. tell us a little right. bit about the report, some of the findings, and mm. what led you to sort of do this comprehensive assessment of of how children who were being abused and neglected, um, you know, were actually uh, dying as a result of this, and um, and what everybody knew about it while it was going on. Well, I I think most people in most states have had the experience of seeing a report of some terrible child death. And there's a long history of people in law enforcement and child protection knowing about it. And they sort of wring their hands and say, well, you know, why wasn't anybody doing anything? So we've decided to dig dig into that in in more detail, do a deep dive. Uh, We got some financial support from uh, from uh, a couple. uh, And the the, uh, woman is the uh, prior um, Chief Justice uh, of the State Supreme Court, uh, Kathleen Blatz and her husband, Greg Page. So we got a fellow through a local law school, St. Thomas School of Law, and just dived in and found the data. Uh, and in Minnesota, that's possible because child protection records are public. And that's actually uh, something that Kathleen Blatz made sure would happen when she was the Chief Justice. So I don't know if that occurs in other states. We're going to look at whether that uh, does, but that allowed us to get information on uh, cases that may, you know, otherwise not be available. And then we could cross-reference them with criminal court uh, to see if there were prior convictions, for example, for malicious punishment of a child, domestic violence history, et cetera. So we put those pieces together. And in addition, there's a law in Minnesota which says that any county has to produce a report on a child fatality if requested by any citizen or organization. So we put those two main pieces together. But the the trigger point on this was media uh, uh, stories, because the state does not disclose the names of children who were killed by abuse and neglect. So if it weren't for the media, we never would have had a starting point. Wow. Can you just recite that law that the state has to report if someone requests it? That seems 
That sounds strange. Uh, and why does it sound strange? I'm not sure what uh, what's puzzling about it. Well, it's 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 only reported or revealed right. if, if someone expresses interest, as opposed to just being reported because this is a terrible event that, <laughs> right. that should, yeah. Well, there is a report that each county has to make up to the state, but the state doesn't share those reports. And then there's a separate law that says if I, as, as a citizen or a safe passage for children, request that report, they have to produce it. And there's certain parameters around that about what exactly they have to tell us. It was re really interesting because some counties, you know, even told us about reports that we didn't know about from the media. And other counties refused to comply with the law and some redacted every everything so you couldn't see what it was but of course we knew who it was because we asked for the report in the first place so it was a real mix but i would say most counties cooperated i'm not sure why that where that law came from it, it's kind of uh lost in the midst of time but it was an important source of information for us so can you describe um some of your findings um, and specifically some of the patterns that you saw so um how many children are we talking about and uh, and what did you find in terms of reports to law enforcement and child welfare agencies um, prior to the fatality occurring? Right. So um, basically, uh, there were 88 children that we studied in this report, but there were 161 during that same time period. And again, the state uh, declined to share the names of those other uh, children with us. So that that kind of had a, that was a, a limitation in our report because we suspect it might be kind of heavily weighted towards uh, more violent fatalities as opposed to fatalities from neglect where, say, a mom is intoxicated and rolls over and, and uh, sleeps on her infant and kills her. So that's that's a limitation. I'm not sure why the state wouldn't share that information, but they didn't. So the only source that we had to get started was the media. Um we found, uh, and, and can you just go back because I lost track of the other parts of your question there? Sure, the the patterns that you found okay, with regard right. to reports before the fatality. Right, and so basically we, we uh, found a number of patterns and what we did was identify those patterns and then give a case study, uh, which showed how that worked. And the, the, you know, the downside of that is people may think these are anecdotal, but actually each of these case studies demonstrated a pattern that we found. And the patterns are uh, basically include a lot of these uh, deaths were preventable because they were known for long periods of time to child protection, law enforcement, mental health people, uh, and, and others who got involved with the family. But uh, really nothing definitive was done. So let's say it's a substance abuse case. It's been in and out of the system for six or eight years. And finally, uh, you know, a child is, is killed by those parents. Uh, or it's a case where there's high levels of domestic violence. That was one of the main themes that we saw uh, over over a period of time. And the case keeps getting screened in and put in a, a low risk pool and not followed up on. Um, so those are, you know, a couple of the patterns. Um, another was that there was a high number of children in foster care, almost all of them kinship foster care. And so what we derived from that was that there was really not much due diligence in terms of kinship foster care, not the same kind of, and it's not perfect in, in regular foster care, but not the same kind of looking at whether this is really a safe place to put children. Um, almost half of the deaths were uh, by someone other than the biological parent. So, uh, you know, if you're looking at a case when it comes in, you want to figure out a risk profile. One of the things you want to know 
is that if there's a, a non-biological parent living in the household, particularly we found for older children, uh, that's, that's a risk factor and you ought to address that uh, directly. In terms of the courts, we found that the courts gave significantly lower sentences to biological parents than they did to non-biological you know, parents living in the household. So there seems to be this, this sense that, uh, hey, you know, you've already suffered a great loss by losing your child. We don't want to be too hard on you. And for the life of me, I, I don't understand why someone who kills a child gets a lighter sentence just because they're the parent. In fact, you know, you might think it would be the opposite. So those are a few of the trends that we saw in the uh, in the data. I mean, were there extenuating circumstances in the cases where it was the biological parent, or or did it seem that the, the what you're implying is that they just made a blanket assumption that there should be less penalty for that type of violation? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, you know, I have to think through you know kind of uh, some of the cases, but. Generally, I would say, no, there were very similar circumstances of uh, repeated reports to child protection, repeatedly putting them in a low risk category and getting less attention and services until something really bad happened. Um, and I should say, Naomi, one other major trend that we found there that was one of the more stunning things was a high number of cases where torture was involved. And torture is something that's not, there's not a universally agreed to definition of what comprises torture. But um, we uh, we found 14 cases out of the 88 that had markers or indicators of torture. And the reason we didn't put them into the definite torture category was because um, there was one element missing, let's say psychological uh, torture that wasn't just, re- you know, just wasn't recorded in the, in the case records. Mm-hmm. But five that everybody agreed were torture cases. Uh, and these were cases where let go year after year with many people involved, many reports of child protection, known to medical people, known to mental health people, et cetera. And they still weren't acted upon. And, and they were just some of the most horrific cases I've ever seen. I was interested in in how frequently um, these reports um, and investigations led uh, the family to be placed in, as you say, a low risk category that they were sort of diverted into, you know, getting other kinds of services as opposed to um, the authorities concluding that there was a significant risk here. So can you talk about kind of what you see as the pressures in the system to divert um, these families into low risk categories when it would be clear to even, you know, a lay observer who knows nothing about child welfare that uh, that there is significant risk here? Well, I would say there's probably two major, maybe I'll think of a third one as we talk here, but I think two major indicators. One is just uh, workers are under-resourced, and I think you find this across the board. So, you know, whether it's in business or management of a government agency or whatever, if you don't have enough resources and people are underwater all the time, they find ways to, you know, to make it work the best they can. And one way to do that is to put cases in a low-risk category where you spend about half as much time on them as, as, a, as an investigation. Uh, and, you know, manage your caseload that way. So that's one factor. The other is a philosophy that is, you know, nationwide uh, in, in many 30 or more uh, states, probably, which is that um, parents have been the victims of, um, of racism, of poverty, et cetera. So we want to reach out and engage parents in a, in a, in a family friendly way, uh, really a parent friendly way, uh, and try to work with them. Well, that works for some 
uh, situations. That's just good old fashioned social work, right? But in some situations, you know, a stronger approach is needed to protect the child. So this philosophy, I think, is, you know, frankly, seen as an anti-racism philosophy. But, um, you know, it, I'm a pragmatist when it comes to things like this. The question to me is, what's the situation and is the child safe and what do you need to do to engage the family? And if if necessary, do you have to take stronger action? So that philosophy plays out. Uh, in a way that just gives so much weight to the rights and the interests of parents and so little to the interest and safety of the child that we get these kind of uh, phenomena. And one big chunk of that is the at the front end of the system, there's something called alternative response in the states. And in Minnesota, it's called something different, but I won't go into that. But in, that includes things like giving advance notice of the initial child protection visit. It's sort of like, hello, we're coming out. You better do what you need to do to talk to the kids and make sure that they're what they're going to say is what you want them to say and not want them to say. And the other is that they interview children in the initial child protection visit in front of the alleged perpetrator. Well, when we share that with members of the public, their jaws hit the ground. They just can't believe that that's a practice. And we've been trying to get legislation through now for six or seven years to end those practices and every year, um, both conservatives and, and uh, progressives kind of come out of the woodwork and oppose it for both of them in some respects because they see it as unwarranted interference in the family. So, again, these ideological approaches are uh, we're, we're constantly pressured from both sides, which is why, as I say, I'm a pragmatist. I just want to know what works. I don't want to I don't want to have this particular field clouded by uh grown-up ideological considerations and agendas. Well, that's why we call our podcast, Are You Kidding Me? <laughs> because <laughs> it's these ideologies that get in the way of actually helping kids. Yeah. You mentioned a, a, a racial dimension. What what's what were the racial demographics of, of the 88 kids that you explored? Well, uh, in Minnesota, about 18% of children are African-American in, in child protection, I mean, overall, but 27% or 28% of the fatalities were um, black kids. Uh, and the other uh, racial demographic groups are pretty much proportionate to their presence in the population, but white children were 50% statewide of child protection population and 25% of the fatalities. So we don't know why that is, but you have basically a third more children proportionally who are African-American in child protection ending up as fatalities and half as many you know, proportionately are white. So one of our recommendations is to do a deep dive into that and figure out what's going on. But just reading the case studies, the, you know, the kind of null hypothesis here is that workers are really um, reluctant to remove African-American kids from highly dangerous situations. And they tend to leave them there, um, you know, because there's so much pressure uh, to keep families intact generally and uh, BIPOC families intact particularly. Wow. And how about family structure? What, what proportion of the families were single parent or, or custodial? And how many yeah. married to parent households? You know, I don't think we actually, I mean, I think we have that data, but we didn't uh, compile it. So I'll have to uh, go back and look at that. But, but as I said, uh, 48%, almost half of, of the fatalities were non-biological parents. So that gets you, you know, one one view into that um, piece of demographic, demographic data. Uh, and we found... You know, other interesting, uh, uh, you know, facts were that 
most of the time when children were killed by the biological father, they were infants and toddlers. And most of the times when they were killed by non-biological parents who were men, um, they were older children. Uh, so that, you know, if you're trying to construct a risk profile and trying to figure out what services to provide and when to get, you know, more concerned, those are facts that you would want to have in your risk profile. Uh, and um, but we didn't specifically look at the, the family structure other than those points. What, what did you see in terms of um, substance abuse and, and mental illness uh, as risk factors here? Yeah, they, they were two of the kind of uh, um, uh, patterns that we featured in the report. Um, almost very high percentage of cases, like 70 or 80 percent, had some substance abuse. But um, we kind of narrowed it down to some criteria and somewhere around 25, 30 percent, if I remember correctly, the fatalities were fairly directly related to substance abuse. Uh, that was a main factor or one of the main factors. Uh, and similarly with um, mental health. So with mental health, we saw, I mean, there's a recent case, it's been in the news here, of a little boy who was killed by his mother with nine shotgun blasts. And she had been in and out of mental health uh, facilities inpatient uh, since she was a teenager. And um, she was discharged from her latest uh, um, psychological evaluation where she was inpatient for several days without apparently any planning between the mental health institution and child protection. So it was just she was sent home to care for a five year old when she was still had just recently been delusional, hallucinating and so forth. So that really showed us that we needed to have a lot more uh, coordination between mental health, law enforcement, you know, all the people that touch these so that the case planning when a child, when a parent said home to a very vulnerable child is uh, is a little more coherent. Wow. Um, and I, if I can go back to a question you asked earlier about law enforcement, similarly, there doesn't seem to be kind of a standard way of child protection and law enforcement communicating around domestic violence or other situations. So, uh, that's one of our goals is to try to have that conversation with uh, ch uh, state child protection and county child protection people and law enforcement folks. So one really uh, one, one of the cases of torture, uh, a local police were called 31 times to a particular resident and they never saw the child. They never insisted on actually laying eyes on the child. And they only cross reported to child protection a couple of those times. So. Neighbors provided recordings of this little girl screaming and gave it to the police. Um, as far as we can tell, they didn't go to the court to say, uh, you know, we really need to gain access to this and take the steps necessary to actually see that child. Um, the courts failed to follow up uh, and local child protection failed to follow up on what they knew. And so this child was tortured to death over a period of six months. Um, just a gruesome story. Um, and so all of those, you know, kind of point to the need for people to communicate across these sectors. Yeah. Did you, um, you know, one of the things that I, I hear from advocates of uh, who want to sort of reduce the footprint of child welfare and believe that it's already over involved in the lives of children. Whenever you talk about child fatalities, and I just had this experience recently, I was testifying about some child fatalities in New York. 
um, they're, they always sort of suggest that, uh, that we shouldn't be concerned about child fatalities because they're such a small number um, and they're not representative of what's going on in the whole system. And you can't make policy based on, you know, this, this small number of incidents. Um, you know, to me, it, it's, it's such a bizarre in many ways thing to say, but I was wondering kind of what your response is to that. I mean, you focused very specifically in this report on fatalities. What do you think we can understand about the system as a whole based on these incidents and understanding that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, they're fairly rare? Well, you know, murders are fairly rare, but uh, assaults are not rare, right? I'm just playing devil's advocate. Uh, Okay, no, I know you are. I'm not. And it's also not not rare for the one kid who actually happens to be the victim of this, right? So, but I know you're you're playing devil's advocate, but yes. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I think it's a perfectly good question. And, um, I think that if you look at these cases, you realize that many of them were going on for long periods of time and they just ended up in a fatality. But from everything we could see, there are many other cases that didn't quite get to a fatality, but have gone through. The, it's the same system. They're being ignored and they're being put in low risk categories and they're being carried on for years at a time. Uh, and so we think that this is representative of the system as a whole and how it works. Uh, so I don't. I think that's just a not a very good argument. There's a small number of kids, first of all, you know, because of what Ian said, which is, you know, it's pretty significant for that child. But because I think it's indicative of the process as a whole. Um, So, yeah, I think they'd have to prove that point. I think they'd have to go out and demonstrate why they these are anomalies. I don't believe they're anomalies. Hmm. So what is the impact? What are you seeing in terms of how Minnesota elected officials are responding? Because the, the the report is amazing. Well, we've gotten a lot more attention from people like you and from scholars who have been, you know, very uh, supportive and enthusiastic and complimentary. Some of the people who really work on this stuff and, and know the business we haven't gotten much of a response uh, from the legislature or from the counties or the State Department of Human Services. Um, we were going to do to try to propose some legislation this year, which we normally do every year. Uh, but we were so heads down in this report and we're such a small organization that we didn't really get a running start as we should have on the legislative session. But we'll be taking this report to every legislator and to every county attorney and other kind of people in positions of authority and kind of building up for some legislation next year. Uh, Part of that legislation, part of what we do is to support things that take pressure off families because poverty is one of the main driving forces of child maltreatment across all racial and ethnic groups. So just things like you know, access to childcare uh, or priority for early learning scholarships for kids who are in these situations, uh, you know, housing, those things, you know, really can significantly reduce mal- child maltreatment. So we support those kinds of supports as well, particularly when they're focused on children. But uh, to get back to your question, um, no, we haven't, they're not knocking on our door uh, from the state or the counties uh, or the legislature saying, hey, what can we do about this? We're going to have to push it. When you say poverty is the driving force, how how are you discerning that versus something like family structure? Because there are a lot of poor families yeah. where we're not seeing the behavior that you're right. 
report. It, it, yeah, it's just it's kind of one more factor, one more pressure on families. Obviously, poor people don't necessarily neglect or abuse their children, but on the other hand, there's a higher uh, you know risk of that. It's just a risk factor, and it's one of the main risk factors. And what uh, you know, is, the research is imperfect on this, but what you know, what's been seen over the last thirty years points in the direction of saying. Hey, if you take some pressure off families, if you if you deal with some immediate issues, child maltreatment goes down. Immediate issues could be anything like, you know, they can't pay the rent or the utilities right now or, you know, getting their car fixed so they can get to their job or, or you know, child care to provide some relief to a parent or more, um, you know, more family friendly. If I can use that term, I usually avoid it, but um, uh, family friendly uh, substance abuse programs, there are programs where. Parents can be inpatient and have their child with them. It sounds kind of risky, but um, if that works, and it often does, then it's a way to keep the family together and, and uh, while, the, while the parent is dealing with their substance abuse. So um, just taking the, the some of the strain of poverty off of families does make a difference. So if, you know, someone were sitting here in another state besides Minnesota and were interested in producing a similar kind of report or at least gathering similar kinds of information, I mean, you mentioned Minnesota has this law that allowed you to access to more of the records. What do you think are the the barriers to getting this done in other states as well? And has it been done in other states and we're just not aware of it? Yeah, I'm not aware of anybody else doing this. And I think the, uh, I, I think it's a question that has yet to be answered as to whether or not you can get the kind of data in other states to, to do this. So we, we are just starting to look at that. Um, but I do think that it's, um, it's clear that this is, I'm not sure I could prove it, but I think it's clear to me that, uh, this is, we're not atypical. You just yeah. have. You know, um, state after state where you have, you know, some kind of public crisis, which exposes these kinds of issues. It's just an ongoing story in the media. Yeah. Okay. well, um, thank you so much, Rich, for joining us today. We are going to link to the report um, on this podcast episode. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? Uh, You can get episodes of this podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So with that, I am Naomi Schaefer Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thank you. Thanks, Rich. Okay, thank you.